Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week on the podcast, we take a peek into the world of Robert Rubin, a New York-based collector of film scripts. An architectural and art historian by trade, Bob began buying rare and historically significant screenplays seriously in the 1990s, and has now amassed an archive of what he calls exformation, that is, the ephemera that was often discarded in the process of movie making, but now reveals hidden and forgotten histories. We sat down with Bob and bibliographer Erin McGurl, who manages Bob's collection, to leave through some of his treasures. These included variant copies of classics like Citizen Kane and Notorious, editor Louis Lombardo's working scripts for Robert Altman's films, Ben Gazzara's personal copy of the script for The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, and much more. We delve into the ways in which this material, with all of its pictures and notations and scribbles, challenges our understanding of autorism and sheds light on the crucial roles played by script supervisors, secretaries, and writers in Hollywood. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today we are sitting in the library of a uh, collector, Bob Rubin, who's going to walk us through his his pretty remarkable collection of scripts and what he calls X-formation, sort of ephemera, things that have to do with the production of movies, really, that are not... I don't, that are not information, I guess. They're not on the yeah, inside. Maybe you ex- could. Exformation is a funny word because um, I think the original meaning of exformation by the academic who coined it is information that's implied and doesn't need to be stated, uh-huh. which is very different from the usage of the word where I first came across it uh, by the filmmaker Agnieszka Courant who made cutaways, which we'll certainly talk about at some point today. And her definition of exformation is closer to, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it in my more down-to-earth language, it's what falls on the tr- off the truck, What f- it's what falls off the truck on the way to the final product, yeah. right? It's the process material that is roadkill basically. Um, and that exformation can be extremely enlightening in understanding a movie, yeah. especially because a movie, it's not just one guy uh, writing right. and words that fall off the page. There's um, rushes that don't make it on or they make it in, they make it out, alternate endings that are tried out and you know, obviously the textual exformation is, is of particular interest here. So to introduce the collection, I would say the following. The collection focuses on screenplays by uh, in three basic categories, film noir, westerns, and New Hollywood, uh, which correspond to three stages of my own cultural development. Can you talk a little bit about, um, maybe just introduce yourself, like your background, how you came to become a collector? Well, I... And I also want to get to introducing Aaron, because we do have another guest here. (laughs) I, um, 
obviously grew up watching a lot of television, a lot of Westerns on television. I'm just about 70. So when I was in my formative prepubescent years, I was watching The Rifleman and Maverick and all that kind of stuff. And uh, then when I was in high school, I discovered Raymond Chandler, James M. Cain, um, Dashiell Hammett, and that led me to film noir, which at the time you could see there was a TV station called Channel 9, WOR, and they would show the million-dollar movie all week. So you could see movies like Double Indemnity that way. And then when I went to college... You could I, catch it in parts, I imagine. Yes. Really like uh, and when I went to college, uh, that corresponded with the new Hollywood period. I graduated in 73, and I was uh, one of the directors of the Film Society. And we were often um, visited by people like uh, Lindsay Anderson, hmm. where they were road testing youth market movies and things like that. <laughs> So they brought us If. That's right. one that I remembered. Then when I when I graduated from college, I became briefly a newspaper reporter and in exchange for doing the dirty work of zoning boards and planning boards and fires and things like that, nursing home birthdays, things like that, they let me write movie reviews. So I did that for about a year. Then I wandered off onto Wall Street for 25 years and after I retired, I sort of came back to the movies. And I've, I've been a book collector for a long time. And one day, I saw a copy of Blade Runner, the script for sale. And suddenly, I realized that, oh, this is like uh, an uncorrected proof for an early draft and that there's a whole uh, material uh, culture around scripts which actually are more interesting than the, than the production of books that's something that Aaron can get into and I started buying scripts with a with a mission to fill up those categories and to find scripts that uh, are pre pre-production or production used scripts and the further away from what actually made it onto the screen the more interesting the document is, even if it never made it onto the screen, it can be an interesting document. So you began with these kind of genre categories or even right. New Hollywood, maybe more of the era, but yeah. And, and I also have, you know, certain auteur figures like Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock and Preston Sturgis in some depth. You know, I'm not that disciplined about what I, about what I buy, although I'm disciplined enough that the people who find this stuff know where to find me which is important. Um, Aaron, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Um, I'm Aaron McGurl. In my day job, I'm executive director of the Bibliographical Society of America, which sounds like a bunch of people who like making lists, but actually it's really relevant to my work with Bob um, because bibliography is actually a more expanded field in which we study textual objects as artifacts of global humanistic culture. And so my training is in librarianship. I have a master's degree in library science. Um, and I am specifically trained and interested in thinking about why text textual objects look the way that they do. So I started working with Bob's collection 
in 2016 before I started working with the BSA. Um, and I've continued working with Bob because this is, I'm an administrator the rest of the time and working with this collection sort of like keeps me sharp and keeps me engaged you with my own that. research. You get to do history and do that. Yeah. Exactly. And like, this is my research in the field now, uh, which is really exciting because it's interdisciplinary, but I really approach the collection. I mean, on a day to day basis, like my work with Bob is making sure that we buy, don't buy the same exact thing mm-hmm. two times <laughs> Um, or fakes or fakes I have definitely identified a couple of fakes in the collection which is fun Um, what do you do when that happens we send it back you can't like call that we pretty pretty much don't (laughs) we pretty much protect ourselves but for example we recently bought a copy of Public Public Enemy Enemy. on on an auction website which shall remain nameless (laughs) because they did the right thing and we paid $5,000 for what we thought was a period uh, copy. And when we got it, Aaron immediately, uh, eagle-eyed Aaron, spotted the fact that while the covers were period, the script itself was a Xerox. Mm. So we called them up and said, you don't want to be on the wrong side of us. And they said, you're right. <laughs> and they sent me my five grand back and uh, then they relisted it with a more yeah. accurate description. I mean, and I, I think somebody for, is going to buy it thinking it somebody, is. Yeah, you, but they, but, it was but more not accurate. You. Not it, us. It was, it was definitely more accurate than what we bought. But then there was the question of whether it was accurate enough to prevent the next guy yeah. from... We'll see. And I I just, you know, a quick thing about the way that I do that and where sort of the training comes in is that, and and a big part of my interest in the collection is that, um, you know, historical printing processes play out in screenplays. And so when I trained as a special collections librarian, it was like, oh, ye olde rare, like cue medieval music uh even and like scribes in monasteries and then like big giant beer swilling men in uh like some early modern print shop and shakespeare and yeah and i i you know i love that stuff it's interesting i learned an incredible amount about how to look at texts by studying that stuff but then the first time i saw a script the thing that i realized was that suddenly the people who made this object were women just like me working in studio um, typing pools. And then that opened a whole door to me into thinking about the hidden ways that women in particular uh, show up in the collection and in screenplays as objects in ways that they don't show up in other kinds of textual objects. And so the way that I do my like forgery detection work is that I'm someone that can look at something and say, well, this is Mimeo and maybe we'll get to do some of this later. This is a typescript. So we know that there's only one copy of this. If it's Mimeo, that means there could be a thousand copies of this. If it's Xerox, if it's, if they're saying this was printed in 1939, that's a lie because there's no Xerox before 1959. Mm Um, so there is this kind of fun forensic aspect of the work that I really enjoy. And, you know, when you're buying stuff on the open market, like you have to know what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we definitely want to get into um, some of those ideas, especially about women's contributions as they've come up in the scripts that you've acquired and worked with. But before that, I was wondering, you know, most people don't think of a screenplay as an object in and of itself. It's like this intermediate stage in the making of a movie. Once a movie comes into being, a script most people probably think is, you know, um, maybe not valuable. Obviously, your work very much challenges that. But I, I thought uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the script as a standalone object, um, you know, reveals to you why that feels important to collect and what does it tell us that movies well, may not. Let, let's talk about the value or the perceived value of a script. To some people, a script has uh, an artifactual value, meaning, like, for example, we have John Wayne's cop working copy of The Searchers, so it's like a, a talismanic object like Steve McQueen's watch, uh, John Wayne's screenplay. Uh, we're more interested in the archival value. What, what can we learn from the object about the end product on the screen? Because I agree, a screenplay is a text that wants to be a moving image, right? So, but it's, it's, it's no different than looking at uh, Balzac's or Proust's uh, printer's proofs, mm -hmm. which they scribbled furiously on while standing over the printing press before the final went to press. There's a lot of very interesting information that can be taken out of that. But, you know, obviously the artifactual scripts are, are much more expensive because collectors are communing with the dead by owning those. Right. That's yeah, not our thing. Celebrity culture. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, we get a lot of these scripts in what are called entertainment memorabilia auctions, uh -huh. and those are mostly costumes and, you know. I think everybody needs to, at least once in their life, go to, like, Julian's website or Heritage and just, like, or Bonham's does a TCM auction, like, once or twice a year. You just need to see the detritus of Hollywood and television that gets sold. Like recently there was an auction where you could buy the whole entire Cheers bar, which is garbage. Like that is not an actual bar. Mm. It's a set. As the person who bought it, I'm going to switch back to But I think, you know, to speak to the artifactual, you know, artifactual versus archival value that Bob was just talking about, I think that also what we start to see is that there's, you know, I think in cinema history, it, as opposed to other areas of the humanities, we can talk to, you know, until recently, you could talk to Bob Rafelson about like King of Marvin Gardens, right? But people's memories of what happens, like there's, you know, there's what he said happens, there's what she said happens, and there's what actually happened. And oral history is super, super important. I'm not downplaying that. But the textual objects, like, you know, I love script supervisors screenplays because they show you a record literally of every single take that was done in the whole entire thing. And like, you know, our brains are have limited capacity, but documents have this way of recording stuff that happened, even in like minute de details about, you know, how many setups somebody used 
or, you know, what the weather was like that day or, um, you know, how a story developed from the first treatment all the way to the final shooting script. Like, you know, there's a stack over here of notorious scripts. Yeah, I think that the idea of the veracity of oral history is very important because, I mean, I just watched Vanishing Point for, you know, the 85th time with the listening to the director's commentary. Mm -hmm. And there's so much stuff that he's saying that we know is not true. I mean, he's a nice man and he loved the movie and he's very complimentary of his peers, but it doesn't, what a lot of what he says doesn't comport at all mm-hmm. with what's in the written record. So I just want to note that we're surrounded by stacks of uh, scripts and other material. And, uh, we're, and I think Bob and Aaron are going to kind of guide us through some of it. Um, one of the ideas that I'm most interested that this collection kind of sparks for me is pushing back on auteurism. I think Aaron, you kind of, you kind of mentioned this already, but um. I know that there's a you have a lot of variants of the Citizen Kane script, and I know that that's been kind of a, uh, a nexus of controversy about who, like who's, dis- yeah, who's the auteur of the Citizen right. Kane. Well, I like to think that um, we have moved beyond the debate, and that the whole I mean, Pauline Kael's book was kind of a distraction, a a MacGuffin or a red herring or whatever you want to call it, because I think most people would agree with the um, idea that uh, Herman Mankiewicz wrote a great story based on his personal knowledge of of, uh, Hearst and that Orson Welles made of it a great movie and that they both, you know, they can argue over where the bounds of credit are, but you know the question of the idea that, uh, as in the as in the Fincher movie, that uh, you know Mankiewicz deserves more credit. You know, obviously Wells is an egomaniac, but it was his movie and it was Mankiewicz's story, and so you know that's all done with now. I hope, and what we're now dealing with is applying the same kind of granular scholarship to the record of Citizen Kane that is applied to any series of literary manuscripts and the writer of those manuscripts and what he was reading and watching and thinking about. And so what we have tried to do is come up with a comprehensive overview of everything that's out there and ascertain whether what's out there is an original or a copy of something, which Aaron can speak to. And we've picked up a bunch of documents that are not generally known. And one of these days, not today, we're going to launch a project around those scripts because it's it's clear that um, there may not even be scripts for part of the film. You know, things things get shot. I mean, in an organized production, they redo the pages every day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just say, okay, roll it. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the the sort of interventions that I'm trying to make as someone who's coming from outside of the discipline of film studies is that as a 
very normal practice in bibliography, we want to look at every existing copy of a book that we can get our hands on. And so I am just interested as a foundational practice in seeing every copy of Citizen Kane that I possibly can. And so um, I've been to the Margaret Herrick Library and I've seen what they have there. Uh, I've been to UCLA. They have remarkable materials there, including um, a copy of the script that was used by Amalia Kent, who was also called Molly. And she was either Orson Welles's secretary, she might have been script supervisor on the movie, but you can see an annotated copy of the script where she is editing all of the um, slug lines and going through the script and actually conforming what they're working on into cinematic grammar, which is, I think, a major role that women played in studios. And there's actually like um, Aaron Hill has a great book called Women's Work in Media Production, Never Done is the title, uh, that goes over that women were doing all this stuff. But it's really cool to see a sur surviving script where you see it in action. And nobody has written about that particular one for Citizen Kane. And so that's where you start to disrupt the auteurist narrative, because even though we know, yes, Orson Welles, took Herman Mankiewicz's script and made it into a great movie, someone like Amalia Kent was actually translating that into the textual guide that meant that everyone could focus on their craft on the set and during the production while cameras were rolling so that the script read in a consistent way that everyone and followed the conventions of grammar for a script at the time. And, that, and that's only one piece of the whole post-tourist post uh, discourse because then you have Greg Tolland and... Yeah. The art director, whose name I forget, but who was quite resourceful with a limited budget. And, and when yeah. you start to see this whole range of materials that survive, that are at, you know, they're not just in L.A., by the way, they're at the University of Michigan. I'm going to see one at the Lilly Library at the University of Indiana at the end of this month. Like, there are film archives in the Midwest that hold these materials. You know, there's copies of the script at the MoMA that are very weird and interesting. Um, and people have tried to say stuff about them that, you know, I'm not sure if makes a lot of sense, but, you know, they exist and they only make sense when you look at them in the span of here is the here is how all of these documents fit together and speak to each other. And when scholarship was done on this in the past, those archives weren't settled yet. So like Wells's papers weren't yet at Michigan. The RKO archive wasn't yet fully established at UCLA. So now that, you know, cinema has evolved and film studies has evolved in this way that library collections have been established, you know, we start, we start to be able to do this work more systematically. And also it's really is important that someone like Bob and I hope other people will collect in other genres in a similar way around films and genres. So when you go to most libraries, you see, you know, the Robert De Niro papers recently went to the Harry Ransom Center. That's wonderful if you want to study Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese and other people he has worked with. If you are interested in a particular film and how that movie came together, you know, there's no like, you know, it's totally dispersed. And you need a lot of research support and fellowships in order to go to the multiple places. And who knows what else is floating around out there in the market. And the fact that someone like Bob is approaching it in this really comprehensive way is a like truly critical intervention, not only in 
shaping a collection, but in shaping future scholarly research so that the stuff can just be in one as much as possible in one place. I'm curious if you can talk more um, about some of the other uh, figures, like especially women whose contributions this work has revealed to you. Um, I know there is, um, you've spoken about Polly Platt uh, in some previous talks that you've done, uh, Meta Carpenter, just if you could walk us through some of those figures and just the revelations that have come to you through this collection. Yeah, you can probably add Carol Eastman, Carol to, that, Eastman. to that list as well. Um, well, Polly Platt is a fascinating figure because we're definitely in the realm of Edith Wharton relative to Henry James or Charlotte Perriand relative to Le Corbusier, where there's been a, a, a rethink of the relative contribution of the parties. Um, one very interesting script that we have uh, is a draft of uh, Charlie Varick which was is very different from uh, what was eventually shot. And what's also interesting is Charlie Varick was written by Howard Rodman Sr., I believe. Is, was, was, we are looking at the right, so, screenplay right now. And I happen to know Howard Rodman Jr., who's also a screenwriter. And when I told him this, he said, I don't think my dad ever knew that there were other versions of that floating around. And he said, but as I sit here and think about it, why wouldn't a producer try out ideas on several different writers to see what came up? But if you look at this script, you can get a sense that Polly Platt is the person who kind of read the novel and said, this is how I see the movie. Mm. And Bogdanovich wrote a screenplay around her vision. So yeah, know. I mean, it says on the cover, uh, screenplay by Peter Bogdanovich, adaptation, Polly Platt. Right. So that what adaptation means to us is that she read the novel and said, this is the movie I see coming out of this. Like did a treatment, right. maybe like a right. little. And I think that makes sense with Polly Platt's legacy as a designer that, and, and also, I mean, the incredible work by Karina Longworth on the, um, you must remember this podcast, like going through her whole life story. Like you really see, um, there's also a new biography. It is extremely expensive. It's like a hundred dollar, a scholarly monograph, but there is a new biography printed about Polly Platt as well. And I forget the author's name, but, um, you know, Polly Platt really was someone who had vision and could see how the parts all fit together and how things were expressive in this larger scale. And so, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that the credit works that way. Also on the, the script is called The Looters. It's not called Charlie Varick. So the only way that you know that this is an adaptation, this is an adaptation of a book called mm -hmm. The Looters on which Charlie Varick was based. And Charlie Varick completely changes the whole novel. Like, I love that movie. It's a personal favorite. But another thing too is that, you know, and and going back to this thing about oral history, right? Like this is what Rodman said about, oh, you know, somebody was probably shopping the script around to them. But what the script also says is that it's the production information is Sadakoy Productions. And Sadakoy did Paper Moon uh, and What's Up Doc. And it was like, you know, the Bogdanovich production company. So I think this is still that point in this like long tail post Selznick 
I think, of people being like, we can turn books into movies, you know? Like, there's such a long history of people doing that. And you can see Polly Platt is fitting. Yeah, fitting in. And it's like this whole new Hollywood thing where it's like, we have our own production company, even though we've only made, like, one movie. It's 1970 that they were working on this. You mentioned Meta Carpenter, too, I think. And I I know that uh, that she's kind of interesting. Meta Carpenter is amazing because... um, She's mostly known as William Faulkner's mistress, and uh, both both Aaron and I recently read her book. Uh, it's called "A Mist- Loving Gentleman." A loving gentleman, oh. and we went into it fearing the worst. Yeah, and it's actually an incredibly moving and 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 beautiful book. I mean, Faulkner comes off as a hot mess in this book. Yeah. Uh, but they but also who was devoted? Who was devoted to her, but yeah. who was not going anywhere? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this, this, I'm, I'm telling this story because a very interesting film scholar who works out of Los Angeles, Philippe Gornier, used to um, work on the production crew of a French television show called Cinema Cinema, and uh, they shot a segment with with uh, Meta, who showed up hoping to talk about her work as a script supervisor because she is the founder of the guild and yeah. you know a real pioneer in this and all they wanted to talk about was Faulkner so Philippe took her into a room after the shoot and did another interview which we have and have had transcribed but she's a, a, a great example she started out as Howard Hawks's secretary and ended up becoming... Greg Toland trained her in how to identify camera lenses and describe what was going on on the set during the shoot of Barbary Coast. Hmm. So she learned completely on the fly. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Where, what was her background before she, she went to secretarial school? Okay, she, she was a, she was a nice girl. She was a, a she was born in Mississippi, so that was why she and Faulkner like had the southern them. thing. Right. And then says a native lifelong New Yorker um, that southern thing, right. <laughs> whatever that means. Whatever they do, right. um, I'm married to someone from New Jersey, so I kind of get it. Um, but. <laughs> So she also was trained as a classical pianist, like Southern prep school girl. Really, you know, family family disapproved of her living in Hollywood. She was married several times. Really interesting relationships, always with really artistically inclined people. Her second husband was a concert pianist um, named Wolfgang Rebner and she lived in Nazi Germany with him. He was a Jew also. So like utterly fascinating person. You should read the memoir. But the thing that's so fascinating is that she, she's kind of in and out of Hollywood. And then in the, by the mid forties, she's back. And she finally, she works first. She's, she's doing work on government propaganda films. And then she finally gets another job on a feature and 
from then on, she's working on like with, you know, tremendous directors and on amazing movies like and through the breakdown of the studio system and into New Hollywood. So sitting on the table are her scripts for um, The King of Marvin Garden, Shampoo and Pritzi's Honor. Um, and in the back of the script for Pritzi's Honor, there is this amazing thing because one of the other movies that she worked on with John Huston was the Maltese Falcon. And so in the back of this script. So her career has some legs. Yeah. It works. Like 50 film credits. And that's just on what she's credited. Right. So there's this note. This is below a page where she's documenting like, okay, this on December 6th, we shot this slate. There were this many setups, this many prints, you know, how long, the number of pages in the script that we shot. And then she has this note that says that I think that must have been. It's a draft of a letter that she may not have ever sent, but she drafted it. And it says, let me tell you how much I have appreciated this assignment on your film. It has been a unique and quite wonderful experience and one I shall treasure for a long, for as long as I live. Sitting with you on, on the set every day, watching you develop the script in, into the finished product reminds me of work on the Maltese Falcon when all of us um, on the crew, almost like a family, look forward with pleasure to each day's work witnessing Pritzi's honor has given me all of the same pleasure and you know when you read her memoir and when you see her work like she when the director is on the set the script supervisor is on the set like she is noting every single thing that is happening and she understands the grammar of film language she understands how movies get made like every single part of it um like huge props to any script supervisor listening to this. I think that you all are amazing. And I've learned about what the work that script supervisors do because Bob has recognized that these scripts are worth buying and preserving. That brings up um, another question I had is, so are you able to track the way that these roles changed in as functionally on set, like yeah, script supervisor, different, different jobs that people had, did those did their responsibilities change over the years as Hollywood shifted? Like when you have a script supervisor on a on a on Prizzy's honor on, is that the same? Does that person do the same thing as, for example, on an independent production with a well, smaller? Well, that's an interesting question. Yeah. I think that um, I'm not even sure some of these new Hollywood movies had script supervisors right. because in the work that I've been doing on Vanishing Point. What I've noticed, Vanishing Point is a movie where they had to cut a third of the production schedule at the last minute for financial reasons. And the movie, uh, as it appeared compared to the final shooting script, the dialogue is right out of the final shooting script and or it's not at all in the movie. So what clearly was going on was that they were just using the script and there was no intermediary handing out revision pages because I, I have an actor's working copy from Vanishing Point and there are no rainbow pages in it as they're called. There's no indication of anything other than that he read the lines that were in the script because 
you know, these were lean and mean uh, crews operating, you know, semi-documentary style. I don't, I mean, I doubt there was a script supervisor on the last movie. He would have killed, he would have killed himself early on in the process. But what you Do you have a script, you have a script for the last movie? Yeah, I have a script for the last movie with um, Terry Southern's, an early wow. script with Terry Southern's comments to Dennis Hopper about it in development. Yeah, that's so, all. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, just right. just a that. minor <laughs> right, right. item here. I mean, and the the other question that as you're talking, I'm thinking about is uh, you mentioned this before the difference between the script and the final product, but a lot of new Hollywood films also, uh, you know, were very improvisation driven. Like I think you have a script for Mikey oh, really? and Nikki, right? Well, that's a that, yes yeah. and no because I think that when you want to talk about uh, and Altman, we have Cassavetes and Altman. That well, first as a general comment, Cassavetes movies are much more faithful to the script mm-hmm. than they feel, right? Which is a testament to his talent so as acting. a filmmaker, right? As well, yeah. Altman, you're going to get some movies are very close to the script. Some movies turned out to have no relationship to the script. He was a little more hit or miss. Yeah, I mean, we have Brewster McLeod, um, an early script for it, and then the script supervisors. It's actually Louis Lombardo's copy of the script. And so what a script supervisor does is they take all these notes by hand that we're, we're seeing all these handwritten notes, mm-hmm. and then they'll type them up in a much neater, cleaned up form so that the editor basically has an inventory of like, this is everything we shot on this day so you know how to navigate the footage set up by setup and you know we printed all this stuff but also there are these other takes we didn't print them but just in case you know that it's there so um joan tewksbury was interestingly the script supervisor on mccabe and mrs miller and like to speak to your earlier question she just got hired because like they needed somebody to do it and i think that's a big thing with independent stuff still to this day that it's like look if you're new and you're gonna you just want to get your foot in the door yeah try out whatever role somebody will hand you so you know joan tewksbury went on to write nashville uh but in Brewster McLeod, you see he is shooting all over that script like it's totally cut up. There's just all kinds of stuff he changed. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you can see he's writing, basically writing it as they're going along. And then in my hands, about going back to Cassavetes, we have Ben Gazzara's copy of Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's artifact and archival, yeah. right? Right. And what you see is that like, you know, there's pages coming in every day and sometimes... Listeners, I just want to make clear that we're, I've, I just got kind of chills. <laughs> so that you can touch it. This is the celebrity. This is the celebrity <laughs> object that makes and me And so excited. like, you know, what we're looking at right now is like a page that is marked insert in red, like kid marker. Um, and this is a page that's reti- like some dialogue got retyped. Um, the page is numbered by hand, but it's a, the text is Xeroxed and you can see they're crossing stuff out, but like they're, they're still using the script as a scaffolding against which they're playing. It's not like the whole thing was just, you know, they walked in with a one page outline of right. what the movie would like, be. Like acting school, right? Yeah. No, Here's this, your improv instructions. Yeah, exactly. Right. But this is how, uh, Godard famously has made many of his films, right? But definitely, Godard is in a class by himself, and in fact, 
You mentioned Godard. The script that got away is a script for Contempt, which came on the market in France mm. some years ago and sold for a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, fortunately, the person who bought it reprinted it in facsimile, so I have it. And when you read it, it's perfectly clear that Godard wrote this script because the producers demanded something in writing to demonstrate that he, you know, there's a lot of, of, of stories about contempt and about them coming back to him and saying, we don't have enough of Bridget Bardot's butt in the thing. And so he did, you know, he, he, he responded in a clever way, but it's a script that was only written to blow off producers and doesn't really have much to do with the, the movie. So it's, you know, there's different levels of improvisation, but as a general rule, it's a tribute to Cassavetes' talent that his films feel so improvised. I'm actually curious, because of the Godard example, also uh, how you've been able to track the changing role of the screenplay and the like financial um, relationships of filmmaking. So the Godard example, I, I believe there are also some scripts you have in your collection, if I'm not wrong, uh, which were written for distributors, so they are written maybe even after production? Yeah, so for example, there's a script for Don't Look Back, which is a documentary, and you know, obviously it wasn't written before the thing was shot. It could have been written because it was too expensive to send 16-millimeter teasers to distributors. It could also, it occurred to me after we talked about it, that it may be what they based an eventual paperback book about the movie for. But you, you tangentially raise another point, which is that before the collapse of the studio system, there was almost no such thing as a spec script. Scripts were written after a project was green-lighted by people who worked in the Hollywood studio system. Post-Easy Rider, people are like writing scripts to sell movies. And so the scripts move away from being blueprints to organize the, the spending of millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars on a project in some you know efficient and economical way to being like what we would call today a deck. Like you're doing a cultural project, you make a deck and you send the deck. Before decks, you wrote the screenplay and that, of course, you have some of the screenplays that have very interesting graphics on the covers. Um, and they're written, they're more literary because you're trying to make the person who's reading them say, gee, this is a film I'd really like to see. Whereas a completely workmanlike screenplay is can be pretty dull. There's a fellow called Steve Price who's done some interesting work on the history of the screenplay as a graphic form. His work is super interesting because he talks about how the screenplay evolved as a, let's use lowercase l, literary form mm -hmm. um, that followed specific conventions from the silent era to you know, the form that we know it now. And with the advent of computer programs for screenwriting this the way that we see screenplays now are ex way more consistent than they were mm -hmm. so different studios had different styles during the studio era um and this is what secretaries were the masters of like if anyone has tried to use a typewriter today 
to type a letter for fun to someone or do an art project and you broke it like imagine typing out a screenplay and getting all of everything exactly where you need it to be like they were technicians they weren't dum-dums looking for a husband um and you know i think like i I love joan from mad men that'll be the subhead of this podcast (laughs) but i think that um you know one of the things that we I really love to see in screenplays is just how that the degree of specificity also changes. So like Bob has a script for, um, Oh, what's the Western with Barbara Stanwyck. That's kind of a noir, the Furies. And they are planning out every single shot, every shot. If you did that today and submitted that, it would be like, no, we don't, this is the director's job. You, you know, so the screenwriters are really thinking, I think with the producers in particular about how they are plotting out every single thing. And Hitchcock scripts looks like, look like this as well. So on the table, we have a stack of Hitchcock scripts that go from um, the treatment stage where they're just, you can just pick them up and look at them. Don't be shy. Um, and it goes from the treatment stage where they're just like, hey, this is more or less what this movie looks like. Then they move on and start fleshing it out. Then they'll do something called a dialogue treatment where they just write out what people say. They'll do something called an estimating script, which is purely for the purposes of the producers to figure out what the budget of the movie is going to be. Um, And then you'll work all the way until the end where somebody writes a script that is based on the final cut of the film. And that was what was distributed to, you know, the people who were doing the screenings. And what's interesting about those is that the way that the pages are numbered reflect the reels. So it's like reel one, page one, reel one, page two. And then you'll get, you'll, it will show you where it's if somebody wants to read the script and play from, you know, a a celluloid print. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of an interesting way that that works. One other cool thing about Notorious is that... Which Clint is currently leafing through. So that was a Hitchcock picture that was done when he was still under contract to Selznick. And I think it went over to... It might have gone over to Paramount or something like that. And he finished it there. And... Selznick was busy on Duel in the Sun at the time. And he, there's a great memo in the um, collection, which is at the Harry Ransom Center, uh, where Selznick says, I am so busy on Duel in the Sun. I am putting Barbara Keon, who no one has ever heard of, in charge of like everything for this movie. Barbara Keon worked with him from the time he was at MGM until like the late 40s early 50s and she was the one that was representing Selznick in conversations with the State Department about the ending of the movie you know like about like the whole nuclear plot twist and all that stuff you know so again there's this this role there's this way that these scripts especially again seeing them all together who's this name let me pay attention to who this person is suddenly sort of leads you to something and is this Cary Grant's copy? It may be. Yeah, you know, we, we Sorry, take that. Just, we I'm take, looking at a copy of right. Notorious that uh, oh, has yeah, a handwritten Cary Grant on the... On yeah, the we, t- we take that with a grain of salt. We take know? it with a grain of salt, <laughs> but it also... Could just be like, like could, he's the but star. No, but we actually think it is his. A mega Cary Grant fangirl. Um, 
open that up and you will see that there's a coffee spill in the back and yeah, it's so like oh my god so we're gonna run it we're gonna run a dna his mouth <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna run a dna test on the there coffee stain ah. right? there it is carrie's there is the stain right. carrie's coffee, coffee. Right. straight from his mouth mm. right so i'm i'm getting chills right i mean i think that selznick would have been better served working on Notorious than on Duel in the Duel Sun. Duel in the Sun is uh, not is my it, favorite movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a big, big production, though. Yeah, well, it's yeah. a very it, weird it, movie. It, it informed uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, erotic adolescence, you know, right. Jennifer Jones. Oh. But other than that, uh, it's not, it doesn't really hold up. Yeah. So. I'm wondering if we can uh, talk a little about Cutaways, which you referenced mm -hmm. at the beginning. Um, yeah, just a little bit about that project and how it relates to your work. Well, C Cutaways is, is um, a wonderful movie that is about uh, three characters who were excised from, respectively, The Conversation, Vanishing Point, and Pulp Fiction. And the uh, director, Agnieszka Courant, uh, reunited the three actors, Abe Vigoda, Charlotte Rampling, and Dick Miller, and shot an actual movie in 2012, somewhere around there. Uh, Abe Vigoda was 92, I think, when he made the movie, where they reprise their roles, and then at the end of the movie, uh, she unfurls the names of all these people that have been cut from movies in the past, mm. Uh, in the typeface of the credits of the movies that they were cut from. So Kevin Costner from The Big Chill and mm. some of these others. And, you know, her her idea is that these, the, these constitute a kind of frozen capital. Uh, but um, I'm very interested in that because in particular, uh, the Charlotte Rampling scene that was cut from Vanishing Point is quite interesting because there are people who feel that it's the missing link mm. from the film and have fetishized its excision as um <clears throat> as significant to the to the to the film uh it's also worth mentioning that when they promoted the film in europe they didn't they, they focused on charlotte rampling because she was a big star there so all the it was like a great bait and switch from the european marketing department because people would show up and there was no Charlotte um, in the movie. Uh, other people feel that it's footage that's better off on the cutting room floor because it would have confused. It was too artsy-fartsy for the rest of the movie. And of course, that's what makes Vanishing Point such an interesting movie is mm -hmm. because so many different people have so many different takes about it. But um, it's clearly uh, up our alley so I do have a copy of the script of the conversation, although that was reshot with a different character, a different actor playing the lawyer. Um, and I have Dick Miller's working copy from Pulp Fiction, which he never appeared in. So that's pretty cool. That's a very meta object to have in the in the collection. But it's very much in the spirit of what we're what we're doing here and. I hope to collaborate with Agnieszka on a, on a project involving this frozen capital someday. The movie is part of the Museum of Modern Art permanent collection, by the way. This is kind of related, but uh, you also have a collection of quite a few unproduced scripts. I know you mentioned this already, but uh, 
among them the Harmony Korine Gift of the Ages, which is pro- is that the newest, the most recent script? Yeah, that that's, you have? yeah, that's because that's one. That's probably the only born digital script uh, that we have. But you want a paper copy, right? Yeah, but that's the irony is that it's a paper copy of a born digital script for which the digital support doesn't exist anymore because the floppy disk or hard right, right. drive or whatever got burned up in a fire. So it's a paper, you know, it's kind of like the script for London After Midnight, which is a movie that's missing, you know. Right. But the fact that it's digital is an extra layer of irony. So which Bob has a copy of the script for London After Midnight. Which is the? Uh, can you can you provide some background on the- London After Midnight? Is a, a Todd Browning silent with Lon Chaney that has who, whose lostness has been fetishized over mm-hmm. the decades. There's a Spanish novelist who wrote a whole novel about looking for a copy of it in South America for the great science fiction collector whose whose name escapes me. Uh, people have shot a version of the movie using the script and surviving stills and just doing, you know, Ken Burns' camera movements around the images <laughs> to try to reconstitute it, you know, and... Uh, the AI version. But, I mean, in fact, most silent mil- movies are lost. So... The script that Bob has is also an interesting thing. It's spirit duplicated, which, um, to give you all a movie reference to understand what that is, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, when everybody gets the handouts and puts them to their nose and smells like... <sighs> Um, like when you get the the three the triplicate, right? And then you get like a hall pass or whatever. Is not not quite. The spirit duplication is like it's a purplish bluish ink, and it was very commonly used like into the late twentieth century for making like twenty copies of something. Um, but also the the ink isn't as fast as like mimeograph or uh, later like multilith lithography. And so it is fading in the copy that he has. Right. So, so at some point I have yeah. thought like we should, we should digitize this, but then, you know, uh, that just because it's been digitized doesn't mean it's been preserved forever either, obviously. More copies. What's the? Lots of, Lots copies, of copies. Keep stuff safe. Yeah, right. <laughs> I can. I always forget that one. That's a archivist. Yeah, locks. Yeah, locks. <laughs> um. So I think before we wrap up, I guess I I know that you also uh, I did want to ask about your copy of the uh, Faulkner's pre- script for Drums Along the Mohawk because you'd mentioned that before. And in, it's they're kind of at the your same. elbow. They're right next to my elbow. I'm bumping well, into them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that another evolution in scholarship that we're seeing is the dissolve between these kind of high-low boundaries between movies and literature, and that until recently, people, you know, talked about Faulkner and Fitzgerald and West and all these other people as... Uh, Hollywood roadkill, you know, tragic stories, and that what they wrote was garbage. And a lot of what they wrote was garbage, but a lot of what they wrote was also them working out themes that would uh, emerge in their literature. And someone wrote a very compelling essay about the drums in the Mohawk script, which which bears no resemblance to the final John Ford movie, but is 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 highly illuminating of attitudes toward uh, Yakna Patapa County mm-hmm. 
even though it's in upstate New York that, the, that this action is taking place. And I think that when you look at any of the scripts by uh, literary figures who take the cinema seriously, and I would add Guillermo Cabrera Infante to this, that studying his unproduced scripts is almost as interesting as reading his published novels. And, and you were just te you're telling us that you just visited yes. his, that, his collection. At, right. um, I was just in the Princeton Library right. going through his papers because we're, we're publishing a series of books, which I would like to plug, and I'll get to that in a, in a second. And um, he wrote six or seven scripts that never made it onto the screen, but which are fascinating. And because of his background as a film critic, and as a as a novelist, uh, the contents of these scripts, even the scripts that were made, they differ very significantly from what made it onto the screen, and they're worth uh, they're worth looking at. Um, we are putting together a book called Vanishing Point Forever, which will be uh, uh, built around the final shooting script of Vanishing Point, but which will contain a lot of other interesting material, and we hope that this book will be the first of a series of books, each book built around a screenplay, but where typically when you publish a screenplay, you publish the final shooting script, and it's some kind of a pedagogical aid for a film student who's studying screenwriting or directing, that here we see the publication of a of an earlier draft or heavily marked up draft as a platform to look at a bigger subject. So in Vanishing Point, it's also about the, it's the the, the uh, resurrection of Cabrera Infante to his rightful place in the mix of talents in this movie because he's kind of the real missing link. Uh, but it's also about appropriation of the movie by musicians uh, visual artists and other filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino, but we have an idea to publish a Meta Carpenter script for King of Marvin Gardens, along with other Meta Carpenter material that we have, and have that book be about script supervising. Well, and also I think you know, going back to this thing of you know what do when we sort of zoom out and just think about these things as artif artifacts of human culture that are objects like you know early modern historians like tony grafton have done incredible work where they're looking at annotated early modern books and saying through these annotations i can understand how this person thinks and i think that with cabrera and fonte and the annotated scripts at princeton and even with you know you're you're learning how a script supervise a, a screenwriter excuse me thinks about the craft of screenwriting, which like the fact that these books are just aimed at an audience of people who are trying to learn the craft in some way or studying the craft in some way, I think is really relevant that it's not just the final text, but the process of screenwriting and that these artifacts survive, you know, can help us learn how to think like a screenwriter. And I think the thing about the Mita Carpenter stuff, um, is that you're not, with script supervising work, you're not just learning to think like a script supervisor, you're learning how to 
um, think like John Huston. You're learning how to think like the cameraman or cinematographer um, on these various projects because you can see you know, how they construct and then watch the movie. Like, here's how they constructed the scene when they shot it. Here's how we see it. And we can see how that thought process of of creativity was coming together. And I mean, for me, yeah, it's like getting behind somebody's eyeballs. It's like mm-hmm. the best. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Well, I think we're out of time, but we want to say thank you to both of you for walking us through your fascinating collection Bob. If you want to read more about this, you can go on my website, robertmelvinrubin.com. There's a number of articles about screenplays and other interesting things. And I have a website too. It's erinmcgirl.com, but it, I mean, I'm just there <laughs> being me and talking about bibliography and scripts. So check out both their websites and uh, we look forward. And watch for Vanishing Point Forever, maybe by Christmas, to be published by the Film Desk. Oh, great. Yeah. All right. Our friends at the film desk. Thank you so much for having us. This is a pleasure. Thank you for your time and, you know, allowing us into this lovely library. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.